Thank you, Tom, for that prayer. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> that last song had a little Baptocostal feel to it, didn't it? Maybe not. Kind of, sort of. It's good. Gets the blood flowing. I want to invite you to uh, uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13. I promise you, Lord willing, eventually we're going to get there, just not right away. My wife and I, yesterday afternoon and into the evening, um, spent a few hours with a family uh, that was uh, walking through this interesting dynamic of both mourning and celebrating. Uh, they had lost their child. The mother had uh, miscarried uh, just a, a few weeks ago, and this was a time of gathering to, uh, to remember, to celebrate, to mourn. And it was, uh, in an interesting way, it was encouraging, and here's why. This couple, legit believers, solid Christians, they have six children. And their baby Luke passed away in the, loom, in the womb. But there was an air, and my wife can attest to this, there was an air of, this is not the end of the story kind of a thing going on there. Because were they grieving? Absolutely. Were they mourning? Absolutely. But not without hope. They were grieving and mourning in hope. With the hope, with the belief that one day on the other side, they would see baby Luke again. Today's topic is talked about a lot in Scripture, but unfortunately not so much in our churches. I want to talk today about the grace of lament. And I, to, to, I think to do this justice, I need to take some time in, in setting things up. We're going to get to Psalm 13, which is actually a psalm of lament from, from David. We'll get there. But if we just jump right into it, I mean, we could do that, but if we just jump right into it, I don't think it's going to hit us like it should hit us. So allow me a few moments to kind of set the stage. I think setting is crucial. Setting is important. And then we'll actually get into Psalm 13. So as you know, an author's setting for their story is crucial for us understanding the story. How many of you have walked into a, a, a movie either at your home or in the theater and you walked into it midway? You didn't get the setting. The stage wasn't set for you. And you're like, what in the world is going on? There's a reason that the Bible doesn't begin with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have ever... Out of context, that makes zero sense. What? Why do I need a Savior? Is there something wrong with me? What, who's God? So the Bible doesn't start with John 3.16. Where does the Bible begin? Yes, in the beginning, God. So if we're going to do this, this story justice, we had better get the setting right. 
And it's crucially important to get the setting right for this story when we talk about lament. So just follow along with me. Uh, any uh, Les Mis fans? Les Miserables-ish, kind of, sort of? Yeah, love Les Mis. Um, Les Mis, if you've seen it, is not going to make sense unless you understand the backstory of Jean Valjean, the, the key character, the protagonist, unless you understand what he went through and the whole redemption piece, not going to make sense. Uh, Wizard of Oz, Dorothy in Kansas. What's that all about? If we go right to the yellow brick road, what, what, where is she? What is this yellow brick road stuff? Where is she going? Setting is crucial. The Bible is no exception. So please allow me to do an incredibly brief, very, very, very short um, walkthrough in the introduction, like the introduction to the introduction of the story of the Bible. So as I said earlier, in the beginning, God. The story begins with God, period. The biblical narrative begins with, ends with, and is consumed with who? God. This story is not primarily about us. Newsflash. It's about God and His plans and His purposes. And He invites us into this story. Let me say it again. This story, not primarily about us. It is primarily about He who is. The setting presents God as the eternal Creator. And that has to be firmly put in place. If we forget that, then we find ourselves acting as if what? We are the Creator. We are the one in charge. So the Bible begins with the eternal God, the eternal Creator, He who is. He's presented as the one, uh, we might say, has the original Midas touch. Not in the sense that everything he touches turns to gold, but in the sense that everything he touches is good. It's the setting of the story. Everything God touches is good. And after several creative acts, we come to his crowning creative achievement. Lo and behold, us, we, you, me. God's crowning creative achievement. Let that sink in. It's humanity. It's us. Created as male and female. And then he surveys his creation. And you, if you're familiar with the, with the setting, what does he call it? He calls it not just good, but what? Very good. <clears throat> and we then learn something incredibly important about us, about humanity, the pinnacle of God's creation, that if we miss it, we will misunderstand, even find incomprehensible, much of the rest of the biblical narrative. We learn two crucial characteristics inherent in us, inherent in this narrative 
male-female very goodness. That if we, if we misunderstand either one, the rest of the story, we're basically going to not understand. So we need to have these two characteristics firmly in place. The first characteristic is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Many of you are familiar with this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, this wonderful poetic uh, uh, Hebrew parallelism here. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is this very goodness is male, female, humanness. The very image of God. Now, if we don't know what's going on, if we don't know the backstory about what this image of God is all, all about, we'll blow right by it. So let me very briefly unpack this. Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs puts it this way. In the ancient world, it was rulers, emperors, and pharaohs who were held to be in the image of God. So what Genesis was saying was that we are all royalty. In ancient times, the time of the Israelites, the A-N-E, the ancient Near East, the, the, the original recipients of the Torah, the original recipients of the book of Genesis, the original recipients of the setting for the story. They understood that a conquering king would set up images of himself throughout the land. Why? As a reminder of who was in charge who deserve their obedience. Now, it's incredibly interesting. I think one of the reasons <clears throat> for the second commandment is right here. Don't, don't fashion any man-made idols, any graven images. Don't worship them. Why? Because God already has. Do you see that? God has already set up images of Himself across the land. You and me. Images of God. He has set up His image, his image bearers. And let me, just as an aside, <coughs> it is only on Christianity that you get basic, fundamental human rights, like basic fundamental human rights for everybody because of this reality, because of this truth. You only get it on Christianity. Our founding fathers, flawed though they were, the founding fathers recognized this, and they called them unalienable rights. They believed that governments don't give these rights. They must recognize these rights because they are inherent within us. We come from the womb with this image of God, even in the womb with this image of God. That's the first characteristic, and that has to be firmly in place. We are like God, that nothing else 
not even angels, nothing else in all of creation is like God. That's the first characteristic. The second crucial characteristic for, our, for us to understand the story, found in Genesis 2, verses 5 through 7. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Here it is. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Of dust from the ground. It's interesting. Uh, the Hebrew term for man is Adam. Adam. The Hebrew term for the earth, not the globe, but for dirt is Adama. In Hebrew, there's a wonderful play on words here. We are of the earth, earthy. We are dust. That must be firmly in place. From the ground and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And then it would be cool had the story stopped there. But it doesn't. Because after Genesis 2 comes Genesis 3. And if you're familiar with the narrative, if you're familiar with the story, you know things begin to go haywire in Genesis 3. We learn of the willful disobedience of these image bearers born of the dust. The rest of the biblical story, the rest of the biblical narrative is basically the redemption and restoration of God's original very goodness intent for His creation. So, to kind of sum that up, according to the setting of the biblical story, as human beings... We are a staggering mixture of glory and dust now fallen. Let me say it again. As human beings, we are now, present tense, a staggering mixture of glory and dust now fallen, broken. Blaise Pascal, a brilliant mathematician, converts to Christianity later in life, writes his penses or thoughts, and part of that reads, man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach both. Let that sink in. Truth? Man's greatness and wretchedness are so evident that the true religion must necessarily teach teach both and the bible does in this story we learn what, what what do we know what do we know nobody has to teach us this we we get old enough to be able to think things through we get old enough to to be aware of the world around us and we know two things intuitively and you know it to be true number one we know that the world outside of us is not as it should be. 
is not as it ought to be. Nobody has to teach you that. Second thing, we also know that the world inside of us is not as it ought to be. And nobody has to teach you that. You know that to be truth. The world outside of us and the world inside of us is not, we may not be able to put our finger on it, we may not be coming at it from a Christian perspective, but we know, Christian or not, that things are not as they ought to be. Lament then. What does this all have to do with lament? Lament then is a grace. Lament, then, is a gift from God for helping us navigate life as glorious dust creatures living in a fallen, broken world. I believe that one day we will not need lament, but that day is not now. Now, today, this side of our eternal life, we need this grace. We need to lean into this grace of lament. So the grace of lament is for you if you have been hurt by others. The grace of lament is for you if you have hurt others. And the grace of lament is for you if you hurt for others. I think I've pretty much included all of us. Fair? Everybody good? You hanging in there? The grace of lament is for you if you have been hurt by others. The grace of lament is for you if you have hurt others. And the grace of lament is for you if you hurt for others. To one degree or another, because we are glorious dust creatures in a fallen world, right now, this very second, we are hurting. And that's reality. And the grace of lament is God's gift to us in a broken world to navigate the waters of brokenness. Oh. All right, Psalm 13. I told you we'd get there. Psalm 13. <clears throat> Context. Depending on what translation you're using, it will read something like, at the very top, before we even get to verse 1, to the choir master for the director of music, a psalm of who? What's it say? A psalm of David. <clears throat> Psalm 13 is an ancient Hebrew song, as are all of the psalms meant to be sung. This particular psalm is what's known as a psalm of lament. Scholars tell us that David was anywhere from about 10 to 15 years old when Samuel taps him on the shoulder, anoints him, and says, you are the next king. However, David was 30 years old before he ascended the throne. So 15 to 20 year interim. What's going on during that time? Well, this psalm 
is written during that interim period. 15 to 20 years span. Between David's anointing and his ascension to the throne initially in Hebron. And a fair amount of those 15 to 20 years, if you're familiar with his life, was David as a man on the run. Running for his life, hiding in caves like a criminal, scraping for food, because the current king, who was the current king? King Saul. Because the current king saw David, rightfully so, as a threat, and Saul wanted David dead. So a fair amount of these 15 to 20 years is David running for his life. Psalm 13 describes such a season of lament in David's life. It's divided into three stanzas, and we're going to walk through each stanza. First stanza, verses 1 and 2. This is David. How long, O Lord? You have to feel this. You cannot just read the Psalms. You can't just read the Psalms. Pretty much every emotion known to humanity is in the book of Psalms. So you have to feel the Psalms. When we sing songs here, or when I sing songs in the car, I just, I don't know about you, I don't just sing words. Music gets in us, doesn't it? We get to toe-tapping, or the tears begin to flow. Music has that capability. So although we don't sing the Psalms, we at least need to feel the Psalms like we would any other song. So you have to feel this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long? There's four how longs here. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul? And have sorrow in my heart all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You can feel the hurt in David's voice. You can feel the lament in his words. It's interesting to note that throughout his lament in Psalm 13, this is important. David doesn't question God's existence. David isn't wrestling with if God is there or not. That's not his point of contention. That's not his point of wrestling. God's existence is still assumed by David in spite of what he's walking through. So if the question David is wrestling with if his lament isn't about God's existence, what is it about? I suggest to you that the question David is wrestling with is God's care and concern for David. In a word, David is not wrestling with God's existence. David is wrestling with God's goodness. He doesn't rest. He's crying out to him. He believes he exists. He's not sure he's still good. He's not sure he's still good as it relates to David's life. Such wrestling, as many of us know, such wrestling often involves emotionally raw 
statements back to God. And we see that right here in this first stanza. Emotionally raw. How long? It's as if David is saying, uh, hello? Anybody home? Have you ever felt like that with God? Because I have. Have you ever... Have you ever gone on a rant with God? Have you ever let Him have it? Have you ever voiced your displeasure about what He's allowing you to go through in your life right now? Have you ever been emotionally raw and real with God? I hope so. Because the witness of Scripture is person after person, after person, being emotionally raw and real with God. From Genesis to Revelation. David's cry is quite literally, what in the world, what in my part of the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing, God? What about me? What about my life? Does it matter to you? I'm not the one that sought out this kingship. Remember, your man came to me. I was fine in the pasture with the sheep, minding my own business. I didn't, watch this, I didn't ask for this. Have you been there? I didn't ask for this. It's not what I signed up for. But are such cries of lament permittable, permissible, acceptable for Christians? I think so. Consider this. The most profound lament in the history of ever, was uttered from the lips of our Savior, was uttered from the lips of Jesus, while His barely recognizable body was hanging on the cross. You know the lament. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? If Jesus can lament, we can lament. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 shed some light. Although he, Jesus, was a son, watch this, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. That word perfect, crucial to understanding this verse. It means to consummate, to reach the final stage of something. Several months ago in a sermon, I talked about Aristotle. Aristotle and talking about this, uh, this phrase, telos, or goal, or end game. That's what this word perfect means. It means to have reached a goal, a final stage. If you remember that sermon, if you were here for that, 
I said the telos, or the final stage, or the goal for an acorn is a mature oak tree. Remember that? The Father's goal, the Father's telos for Jesus, was that according to this verse, He become the source of eternal salvation for all who obey Him. What was the pathway? Suffering. Do you see that? That was a pathway. Jesus walked through it. He lamented. He walked through it. To answer David's question, based on the example of Jesus' life then, is that among other things, God's goal, God's end game for David, his perfecting of David, if you will, was that through the means of being on the run from Saul, through the means of suffering, watch this, God was crafting the character of a king. A king who would become a man after God's own heart. If that's true, if all of that's true, what then is the goal, the end game, generally speaking, for a Christian? What's our telos? What is, another way, to, what is this all about anyway? Paul tells us in Romans 8, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the, what is it? The image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now I'm going to risk stating the obvious here. The very word conformed here suggests that at present we ain't. Right? The very word conformed. Presently, we are not fully conformed. Our goal, our end game, our telos, why we're here, is not fully manifested. Why? Because we are still a work in progress. So cut yourself some slack. Show yourself some grace. And oh, by the way, cut your neighbor some slack. Show your neighbor some grace. Nobody has arrived here, guys. That's on the other side. Job security for a Christian. We are always arriving. We are always maturing. We are always being conformed. And one of the most important ways, if he did it with his son, he's going to do it with us. If one of the most important ways that he perfected Jesus was through suffering, then one of the most important ways that he's going to conform us in the image of Jesus is through suffering. It's not fair. No, it's not. It's not fair. Uh, you probably know by now that one of my heroes in life is Johnny Erickson Tato. If you know her story. I uh, just recently, a, uh, an article came out that she penned. She has been in the wheelchair now for 55 years. 55 years. Diving accident when she was 17. Jacked up her spinal cord. 55 years. Let that sink in. 
She can't dress herself. She can't bathe herself. Fifty-five years. And upon reflecting back over the last 55 years, you know what she has to say? Here's what she says. It's because I've been pushed up against God and God has shown me some deep things about his purpose and himself for me. They are so satisfying, so pleasurable. Watch this. Who does this? Who says this? That I wouldn't trade this wheelchair for anything. That saint gets it. That saint understands it. And here we are. Lament. This is what lament does, friends. It pushes up us up against God and compels us to examine our lives and to ask questions that we might not otherwise ask. And maybe, just maybe, God is, through the pain, through the suffering, as real as it is, conforming us a little bit more into the image of His Son. Second stanza, verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Verse 3, the word consider means to look intently at, uh, quite literally, to behold. To look and look and look and look. To, be, to get it. To be fixated on something. That's what consider here means. It's as if David is saying, look, Lord, and I don't know if you've ever had this conversation with God, because I have, and maybe you have. Look, Lord, I mean, sometimes you ever find yourself, who am I? Who am I to say these things to God? Right? I want to flip that around. As a child of God, who are you not to have these conversations with God? Right? I want my children to be real with me. I don't want my children to hide things from me. How about you? I want my friends to be real with me. I don't want surface stuff with my friends. Let's get after it. So who are we not to? God knows anyway. Just bring it out into the open. It's as if David... Is, is quite literally saying, and I've, I've said this to God, look, Lord, drop whatever else you're doing. Let that sink in. Like he's holding up the universe by his hand. Everything is in motion because he's keeping it. The earth is spinning because he's keeping it. It's all that kind of stuff. Lord, drop whatever else you're doing because I need your focused attention right now. I need you. That's what David's saying right here. 
Lord, what a, Lord, fix your gaze on me, on my life. There are three lests in, this, in these two verses. David here is reminding God of what's at stake, the integrity of God's name. Essentially, now watch this, essentially, if I could put it this way, David is calling God's bluff, so to speak, on God's character, on God's nature. Reminding God of His character, reminding God of His nature, reminding God of who He is, is an essential element of lament. Let me say it again, it's that important. Reminding God of His character, reminding God of His nature, reminding God of who He is, is an essential element of lament, of walking through the process of lament. But then the question, of course, becomes, who's the reminding for? Has God forgotten something? Did he forget who he is? Of course not. Who's the reminding for? It's for us. Neil T. Anderson puts it this way. If we're not emotionally real, we may become spiritually vulnerable. You're not hiding anything from God. It benefits you in lament to be real, even if it means being emotionally raw with God. Is there room in the Christian life for questions, for wrestlings, for doubt? Well, if the books of Psalms, Lamentations, and much of the prophets is any indication, then emphatically, yes. This side of foreverness, there is room in the Christian life for questions, for uncertainties, for wrestlings, for doubts. It gives us God-sanctioned space to work through our questions, our wrestlings, and our doubts, not to remain in them. I promise you, if you don't voice this stuff in lament to God, it will eat you away from the inside. If you're not real with God, you're not real. If you're not emotionally vulnerable with God, then this stuff will have its toll, will have its way, will take its toll on you. We work through, we walk through. I want to, you're going you're gonna to see uh, a couple of, of psalms here. Psalm 42, 11, Psalm 43, 5. It's exactly the same. And in fact, many uh, scholars believe that psalm, Psalms 42 and 43 are actually one psalm. And there's this crucial portion in each psalm that reads. Here's the psalmist talking to himself. This is healthy biblical self-talk. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. We're beginning to see David. There's light at the end of the, of the lament tunnel. But he has to walk through the lament to get to the hope. So David began his song of lament with heart-wrenching pleas. To the God who exists. He didn't doubt his existence. He doubted his goodness. 
He then moves to reminding God of his character, of his nature, all of which ultimately leads David to what we read is the third stanza, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Note the verb tense is there. Verse 5, I have, past tense. My heart shall, future. Verse 6, the order is reversed. I will, future. He has, past. This is beautiful poetic imagery that, that David is putting together for us. Crucial in this is verse 5, steadfast love. Here's what David's referring to. He's referring back to uh, the, book of, uh, the book of Exodus. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Note the contrast here. God is gracious, merciful, holy. He's a God of justice. But note the contrast. The contrast is this. Keeping steadfast love for, what's it say? Thousands. Contrast that with but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fortunate. Note the contrast. God does not enjoy justice, but He is a holy God and He does justice. If I could put it this way, at the risk of not being heretical, you know what is in the deepest heart of God? He is slow. He is long-suffering. He is merciful. He is gracious. This passage is quite possibly the pinnacle, the apex of God's self-disclosure, of His self-revelation in the Old Testament. I think throughout Scripture, the only thing that trumps this passage, this God's self-disclosure, is the incarnation itself. Is God putting on human flesh. That trumps this passage. Time after time, the Old Testament prophets quote or allude back to this passage in remembrance and reassurance, just like David does right here in Psalm 13. David reminds himself of who God is. David is processing what he knows to be true about God based on past experience. And what happens? Hope begins to well up freshly and newly within him. Verses 5 and 6, the very beginnings. But I, I will. Here it is, saints. We have a choice here. And here it is. We can choose to interpret God through our circumstances. Or we can choose to interpret our circumstances 
through God's covenant love. And those are the options. And we will make a choice. Notice, so important, nothing around David has changed. He gets, he gets to verses 5 and 6. Nothing's changed. Saul was still king, still enjoying all the perks that come with the position. David still a hunted man on the run, sleeping in caves, deserted areas, scrambling to find food. The, the change in David was within an inner change of mind based upon the reality of God, His character, His nature, His promises, and eventually David's heart follows. Josh McDowell puts it this way. Much wisdom here. Guard your heart with your mind, not your mind with your heart. Guard your heart with your mind, not your mind with your heart. So as I begin to wind down here, I want to suggest something to us all. Maybe it's time that we readmit the fellowship of suffering in the formation of our souls. Let me say that again. Maybe it's time we readmit the fellowship of suffering in the formation of our souls. Might our sufferings actually be a grace gift from God? In David, God was crafting the soul of a king who would become a man after his own heart, lead the nation of Israel into unprecedented blessing. What's the work of art that God is crafting in you through your season of lament? What is the work of art that God is crafting in you? in you through your season of lament. Consider this so important. For the unbeliever, this life is as good as it gets. For the child of God, this life is as tough as it gets. We have been hurt by others. We have hurt others, and we hurt for others. You know this. Jesus never promised a trouble-free life. It's not what he promised. In fact, he promised the opposite. We are a staggering mixture of glory and dust now fallen. But Jesus also promised that trouble, suffering, will never have the last word over our lives. Eventually, the now fallen, glorious dust creatures now fallen, eventually the now fallen is going to fade into non-existence. And we will forever and ever be a staggering mixture of glory and dust, period. And God has gifted us with the grace of lament to see and embrace that very truth.